Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. Before we kick off the show, I just wanted to take a moment to remind you that the ICC Men's Cricket T20 World Cup Final is taking place in Barbados this summer. This, by default, gives all of my fellow cricket fanatics the perfect excuse to go and book a holiday to Barbados in June and experience firsthand the euphoric atmosphere at the Kensington Oval, the cricket mecca of the Caribbean. If the cricket alone isn't enough to tempt you, then let me be the one to remind you that a trip to Barbados can also include leisurely strolls along the breathtaking coastline, mouth-watering flavours of the world-class Bayesian cuisine, and, of course, plenty of rum. Head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today to book the trip of a lifetime to Barbados, the best place to be a cricket fan. Hello and welcome to Following On. I'm John Norman, today bringing you an exclusive interview with one of the greats of English cricket, Marcus Triscothic, who sits down with Neil Manthorpe to discuss his illustrious career. As easy as you like, just helped on its way by Marcus Triscothic. Over the course of the programme, we'll discuss his astonishing spell at the very top of the game, that 2005 Ashes series. England have regained the Ashes at the Oval. And the impact he's had on the game by speaking out about mental health. You're listening to The Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2. And without further ado, it's time to hear from Marcus Triscothic in conversation with Neil Manthorpe. He's one of England's greatest cricketers, and I mean the country rather than the team. And also one of its most enduring, having played an astonishing 27 seasons for Somerset in England scoring over 26,000 first-class runs, almost 6,000 for England, before retiring from international cricket, aged just 31. That'll race away. Nicely played by Trescothic and four runs. And it's for speaking out about mental health and working with players to help them cope with the vagaries of the game that he will be remembered as well as for his staggering career, during which he played 852 games across the formats. Really lovely strokes by Triscothic. And scored 122 centuries. There it is. The first time Marcus Triscothic has scored 100 against Australia. Marcus Triscothic, welcome to the Cricket Collective here on TalkSport 2. Those numbers make my eyes water. Well, when you say 27 years, it felt like 27 years. My knees and back and everything else uh, are thanking me a little bit more now, I would say, for giving them a bit, uh, a bit of a time off. But um, still great fun. Loved it. I would, have, I would have carried on playing if I was still good enough to do so or if it didn't hurt quite as bad. But I just had that, that sort of passion and, and love of the game of wanting to just keep going on and, and doing what we do. Uh, those numbers sunk in, though. I mean, I was going to ask you, what, what's it like being an ex-cricketer now? But... You've been a cricketer for 27 years. Yeah. Were you aware of that, of just what a mountain you were building? I guess, you know, I mean, go through various sort of pre-seasons and then uh, press days and things. Uh, everybody reminds you every day and every year 
when you go in that sort of, sort, sort of time. But, you know, you, you're gradually accumulating the runs that you do and you're achieving milestones and, and um, you know, pass, passing, passing um, certain records for people. And then that, that's, you know, it's part of playing for a long period of time um, and comes at the back end of people's careers when you, when you have done. But it was great. You know, I, it, as I said, it, it, I would have carried on and, and can love to have continued doing that um, and continue building up the, um, the volume of what it was because it was just a, a huge passion of what you do. Behind the air, that's going to go all the way. Very big hit there from Treskothic. You said gradually accumulating. There were times when it was anything but gradual. Um, you, you mean, particularly in the one-day game, I mean, you scored runs very, very quickly at times, and you went through patches of deep purple, didn't you, where the runs just flowed. Yeah. And they're the moments in your career that you really sort of sit back and enjoy because um, you, you're, you're searching or striving for that sort of form all the time. Uh, you're wanting the, the consistency and the level of performance that, you know, that you really sort of feel, you know, at those moments in time, you want them to last forever. But you I think we all know that that's not going to be the case. But you try and stretch them out and make the most of them when they're, when they're there because they're a super, superb place to be. Um, you enjoy the game so much more when it just feels so simple and so easy when it comes to that sort of uh, the time when you get. When you retired from international cricket, you said, I don't know whether it was tongue-in-cheek or, or semi-serious, you said, I'm going to have to keep working for as long as possible to make up for the loss of, uh, of, of your England salary. You yeah. couldn't have thought you'd play another 12 years. No, no, no. no. I, I, thought, uh, I thought probably I was looking at sort of maybe, you know, late 30s and you get into 40, um, to go to 43 um, was a joy, really, an absolute uh, honour to you know to think that you could sort of stretch it out and be good enough to sort sort of play within that time. Um, but the game looked after me brilliantly. You know, I think it wasn't about you know the earning the money and playing for the long period of time. It was the the passion and the love of going out there and scoring runs and winning games with the team. There's um, there's one innings that I'd really like to ask you about. But before that, which are the which are the three or four which come instantly to your mind? Um, well, I regard my best innings for England was the 180 at Johannesburg. Treskothic moves on to his 10th hundred. Magnificent innings from uh, Marcus Treskothic. Just at the right time, I was sort of peaking or getting close to my peak of, of playing at my best. And, you know, as a team, we were growing rapidly to becoming very good. And it was at the right time. Everything sort of fell into place. We were losing all the wickets all around. And suddenly I felt the form that I needed to get. And we, I managed to get a big score and sort of dominate the innings um, to get the team into a position. And then we went on to bowl them out in the, in the afternoon, which was absolutely superb from, you know, to, to sit back and enjoy that, uh, knowing that you made a big impact. Um, you know, that, that old tour in general, I felt I, was all, I played at my best and see that as the best part of my, my England career. So that would be one. Uh, there was a... Two hundred, my highest score, I would say, in both Test cricket and for Somerset. So I got two hundred and nineteen at the Oval. Was probably when my concentration level was at its at its best. It's full. It's through, and it's four, and it's two hundred to Marcus Treskothic. You know, when you have those days where you're pretty much invincible and you can do what you want to do, and you think. 
right, where shall I, where shall I want to hit this, or where am I going to sort of control this game, and how are you going to go about it? Um, I always just sort of describe it as sort of being in the Matrix, the film The Matrix, when they're being shot at and bullets are flying, and you're just sort of ducking and weaving, and so so much it's like slow motion. Oh, I'm seeing it big. I fancy you, Mr. Hall. And up comes 150 to Marcus Trescothic. I remember there was periods within the innings where I could see the ball coming down and the seam coming down, and it's almost like you could count the stitches because it, you were so clear in how my, in, in what you're thinking and what you were watching. It just made it absolutely perfect, and you just wish that every day could be in that sort of way because it must be an amazing game for those people who see it like that, a Coley, a Smith, and they have those. They seem to have those days a lot more than everybody else. Um, and then I got 200 and uh, my host got 284 uh, at Northampton again. You know, to get close to going up to a 300 and to bat for a long period of time. Again, it was it was built around concentration of that for me. When I got my concentration levels really good and really spot on, I found that I could go for a long period of time and not really changing the tempo or changing the way that my brain was operating. It was just machine-like going through the process to get those big scores. And you just, you know, you're grasping on for those moments and wish you could have had them more because they were, they were delightful times to be playing the game. That was the innings that I was wanted to talk about. The, the 219 at the Oval. I mean, people forget the context often when they, sit, they look at a, at a score. I mean, the point about that is that South Africa were 2-1 up in the series. And it had been a monumental series, of course. Um, and then they're, they're 350 for two. Batting, batting first, England staged a, a brilliant fight back, but nonetheless, South Africa still made 484. You know, yeah. a, a, a dozen short of 500. England need to square the series. They need something really, really special. You don't win too many test matches having conceded 484. No, no. And then, so, so you go out there, smash 219, and England make 600. And of course, win on the fifth day. It was an incredible comeback yeah. i think we then bowled Southgate out for what about 150 or 180 i think it was yeah and we had like 70 or 80 i think to knock off for the final wicket but a brilliant test match nonetheless alex stewart's final test match so you're almost thinking you know you're wanting a, a special moment for a for a special career for somebody like that um but you're right when you know when the first team or the opposition score 480 in the first innings you, you very rarely go on to win a game um you know, quite, you'll save many games when it, that happens, if it's a good pitch. But quite often you'll find yourself on the back end of it. But it's one of those days that, or the one of those games that sort of really clicked for me and we got those big scores. But uh, good pitch. The Oval was a brilliant ground and a brilliant pitch for me to bat on. If I, if I could choose anywhere in the world to bat, it would be the Oval. It just always felt good and a nice place to be. Behind the air, that's going to go all the way. Very big hit there from Trescothic. You're listening to the Cricket Collective on Talk Sport 2 and an exclusive interview with the former Somerset and England batsman Marcus Trescothic. A key moment in his international career came in February 2006. He left England's tour of India suffering with mental health issues. And here he speaks to Neil Manthorpe about his battle with that and how he's learned to understand it better. You're listening to the Cricket Collective on Talksport Two. I, I could talk about your career uh, for, for the whole program, but um, I mentioned in the introduction what you will also be 
remembered for. Um, your legacy will be as much off the field as as on it, obviously. Um, for, and the the honesty with which you handled your illness and the subsequent campaigning for mental health awareness um, that people will all, I mean, non-cricketing people know you for that. Are you comfortable with that? Yes, I am, yeah. I, I, I've sort of, uh, you know, the journey that I've taken with all the mental health stuff has really given me something to get stuck into. Um, I'm quite proud of the fact of, of you know, the way that um, we, myself, and, you know, writing the book and telling people all about it has been given the whole illness and mental health issues in general, a bit of something, a bit of backbone and a bit of understanding to people to, to let them know. And I'm proud of the fact that I've been able to talk about it in the way that I, did, way that I have done. And it's, it's really helped me because it's helped destigmatize it and uh, normalize it in many different ways that, um, you know, helps it for me, you know, to, to make it okay. I'm very open in telling people now, even at the, whenever I'm working or whatever I'm doing is that I'm feeling rough. You know, I'm feeling, I'm not feeling great. It's just, you know, I need to go and see my counselor or wherever it would be to be able to, you know, to, to get the help that you know I need to do. And, and that makes it so much easier for me rather than having to hide away. Uh, and that was very much part of the, the situation. When I first came back with India, then from Australia, I was having to hide away and not tell people what was really happening or not what was really going on. And that, that was hard. Um, because I was constantly worried that people were going to find out. So the best way I could see out of it was to just go and say, right, look, here it is. You want to know everything? Here it is. It's, I'll lay it on the table for you. You know, the, the reaction for that, I didn't know what was going to happen, of course. I, I couldn't quite understand before before um, people read about it what their reaction was going to be. But um, I didn't quite probably expect it was going to be as good as what it was. Anyway, you mentioned the book, uh, your biography, Coming Back to Me. Which, which I've read in the last week. Um, I've been meaning to read it ever since it was uh, ever since you wrote it in 2007, but I finally got, got around to it. And the phrase that uh, made such a big impact on me was um, that anxiety was an illness, not a weakness. Um, and that's a phrase that has liberated hundreds of cricketers, and, and, and not, not just cricketers, but, but specifically uh, cricketers. Um, you you said destigmatized. Does it? It seems staggering now that it was such a stigma. Uh, yeah. Throughout most of my career, cricketers have been just absolutely unable to to admit to yeah. to, to any any mental mental health issues. I mean, you've changed the cricket world. Yeah, well, well, that's very nice of you to say. It's like everybody has mental health, you know, and it's good mental health. Same as you have physical health, it's exactly the same. And when you pull a hamstring or you break a finger, your physical health is not right. It's not working. So it's exactly the same with your brain. You know, when, you, when your mental health is not working in the same way, you're needing some way to, to operate and to, to restructure it. And now that may be medication, that may be counseling, that may be um, mindfulness, whatever it may be. But, you know, we all have a certain degree of men good mental health. And when it goes bad for people, and it does go bad for people more than others, it's a lot easier to correct. But um, you know, I think in the past, it's been the stigma around it has been, okay, mental health problems means you're nuts and you're, you need to be in, stuck in an institute for a, for a period of time. You know, the word about mental breakdown, that really gets me. It's just like a nervous breakdown from people. It's like, it's not, it's just 
a period of health in your mind where it's not operating in the same fashion. It's still the word when you get the breakdown word comes around. That still means to me that there's still people seeing it in a different fashion than potentially what it is. It's just ill health in the mind and in different ways. So, you know, we're on a journey and I think we have changed it over time and people have understood it and, and started to uh, realize with the fact that everybody suffers with it in some form of way or most a lot of people will that um, we've come to understand that there's a there's more of a meaning to it when it's not right do you think administrators uh, could do more Trez um, do, you, do you think that players ought to be able to say I don't I'm not up for this tour or I, I need a break from from the game it is happening more and more looking look in Australia I mean that's changed phenomenally there people are are taking little sabbaticals and just say look I just I'm just can't do another tour yeah. do you think administrators could could catch up a little bit with their empathy well I think they are I think they are looking at it very much so now you know the, the, the wellness side of the game is definitely looked upon by the sports sciences you know the medical people look trying to get that in place to look after their well-being before you know anything happened you know before it gets too bad but I think as a group as a management group as administrators I think you've got to be open to the idea because there are going to be periods in people's careers when they're going to need to if they if they struggle with struggle with ill health then they're going to need to be potentially just sort of have a little break and that could be week two weeks four months you know whatever it's going to be and we have seen more recent cases in Australia where they've put their hands up and said I need a little rest from the game just to try and get my mental health back on track and come back and, and do that. And, and they, Cricket Australia, have been great with dealing with that. And, and that's a credit to them. And, you know, we've been, because of the situations we've had with various people dealing with it in England, I believe the ECB, the PCA, the counties, England cricket are ahead of the game because of the situation we've had to deal with. We, we were very much behind it with my situation. No one knew what to do and how to deal with it but it's now very much at the forefront of, you know, of English cricket about how to try and help. When you started the book, did you in, always intend to be so, so brutally honest or, or, or did you sort of get into it and think, oh, sod it, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it everything here? No, no, I think it needed to be, I needed to tell my story as the real story. Many periods over the course of me coming back from India initially and then, and then Australia, there was so much written you know, you know, with social media nowadays and the media in general were, were after it, after the real story about what was going on. And they were looking in the wrong place. You know, they were they were causing troubles, which made it really hard for me and made my mental health problems even worse. So I needed to say, look, this is the story. Here you go. This is it. This is how it was. And the only way I was going to do that really was to be and to tell it as it as it happened. And, you know, as the real problems occurred while away, while at home, and dealing with it all that way. And, and that was the best thing for me. In the book, when you're describing how, how you, you felt, um, you, you, you mentioned irrational fears, despair, panic. Um, you said that you thought you were going to die when you had the, the first the breakdown in, in Baroda. Yeah. But, you know, as a father of, of two children, and you were a, a young father of, of one child there, there must have been just simple guilt that all cricketers feel when they're away from home for a long time. Um, you know, you, your wife Haley was at home by herself with Ellie. She was very young. I mean, the term anxiety doesn't really do that justice. I mean, you, you, 
it's uh, terribly yeah. hard. Yeah, it, very tough. And, you know, a lot of young sportsmen go through that whole feeling now when they have to leave their families behind for a certain period of time. Yes, the families do travel to most on most tours for a certain period. Um, but I think it was just the massive overwhelming of being the anxiety and the feeling what it was, was just feeding itself by being away. It started with one thing to the second thing, and suddenly you're, you're putting all these things together. And then it was just a colossal amount of worry and then problems and not sleeping, not eating, not drinking, um, trying to focus on cricket and then being unhappy and being upset. You know, can you imagine putting all this together over a couple of weeks? Um, it just brew into, you know, into a, a huge storm that was, that, that needed a good period of time away to really understand and sort of reassess uh, where I was going and what I was doing and how I was going to cope with it because I didn't know first of all my I didn't have a clue what to what extent I was ill or needed help with um, and until you get to that point where you do and you understand it it's very tricky to sort of turn it around you you know you I'm better at doing it now because I have an understanding of it um, but it's very tricky at, at that moment in time you just I remember saying to the doctor when uh, I came back from India and we disappeared out of the way, out of the way of the media for a couple of days. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. If your passion for travel is on par with your passion for cricket, and I have some excellent news. The ICC Men's Cricket T20 World Cup Final is being hosted in Barbados this June, which makes it the perfect destination for your summer holidays this year. To make the most of your trip, you can also experience eight matches from the series in Barbados, including England against Scotland and England against Australia. In under a month's time, you could be spending your days exploring the vibrant streets of Bridgetown, drinking rum in the sunshine and experiencing exotic Bayesian delicacies in the culinary capital of the Caribbean. There truly is something for everyone. There's no need to wait a second longer. Head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today to book the trip of a lifetime to Barbados. Truly the best place to be a cricket fan. I remember the doctor had to come in because I felt so rough and I was so upset and I was couldn't sit still. And I said, Doc, there's something wrong with me. Just just take me to the hospital or something. There's something really wrong and I just don't know what it is. <laughs> you know, and that's the power of the mind. You know, it, it can control the body, it can control your thoughts and everything that goes with it and make you feel absolutely awful. 
you know, he then described the symptoms or actually what it was, and obviously it makes perfect sense, but it still took a long period of time to get used to it. Are you grateful to the way Duncan Fletcher handled the situation? Uh, I have no problems with what, you know, he said initially at the time, because it was, was it personal reasons, I think, were, were stated. I was in no frame of mind to worry about what was being said um, from that point of view. Uh, yes, it may have fueled a little bit, of, of course, but um, it, it soon sort of got, got put to bed afterwards, you know, after, you know, getting, getting through the journey a little bit more and letting people know about it. But because of the, the lack of awareness, I think, because no one had really been in that situation and been able to explain it, that was the, the sort of go-to thing. We, we can see now, as we talk about, go back to Cricket Australia straight away, they're saying, yep, yeah, it needs a little bit of time to reassess their mental health and get that back on track. It puts it to bed straight away. You know, if we'd have been, if we'd have had the experience of what we have now, then things would have been easy enough to deal with. Still to come on the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2, Marcus Strascothic talks about how his journey with his mental health has affected current professionals. You're listening to the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2 with the Institute of Cricket. There it is. The first time Marcus Treskothic has scored 100 against Australia in both one-day internationals and test match cricket. It's a big moment for him. You're listening to the Cricket Collective on Talk Sport 2 and our exclusive interview with the former Somerset and England batsman Marcus Trescothic. Having discussed his own experiences with mental health, here he discusses whether cricket has a problem with the illness and whether anything can be done to help prevent players suffering from it. The second time when your career came to an end, the um, 06 07, the beginning of the Ashes down under, um, again, you described the situation where you're struggling desperately with jet lag which i really mm. sympathize with yeah. you're on the sleeping tablets you finally get to sleep in the early hours <laughs> of the morning yeah. and then there's a knock on your hotel door at 7 30 somebody yeah. wants you to pee in a cup for a, a drugs test yeah. well that'd be enough to most people to snap yeah and absolutely and I, and I was thinking at that time crikey i've taken a mountain of drugs here in the last sort of 36 <laughs> hours just to get me here so you know what, what if there's something in one of these drugs and i'm going to I'm going to, you know, so all this was just worrying me, you know, just because I was in that anxious state anyway. Yeah, and obviously very typical about, uh, you know, going to that part of the world, having, A, we'd beaten them in, in 05, so they wanted revenge and beaten us up, and, and they started it from day one, which was um, self-explanatory, really. But, yeah, it is. jet lag is, it does have an impact, I, I think, on your mental health, because obviously you, you get tired and you get sort of worn down a little bit. Um, so you know, trying to stay on top of that is always important. But it's that's part and parcel of when you go to these parts of the world. When you go on a tour in there, you've got to be used to this part of what's going to happen. Easier now as a coach because no one's going to care about who you are, and you know you're there to do a different job. But uh, it's a lot different, I would say. How did you feel? Well, you probably didn't care at the time because you had bigger things to to be concerned about. But retrospectively, um, people who described you as uh, suffering from homesickness. It's a little disparaging. And, and also, did it make you angry when, you, when people said that you were being unpatriotic and your country needed you and you're the best player? What are you doing going home? I hadn't really seen much about it at that time because I was avoiding social media, what, what was around at that sort of time, luckily. 
Um, I'm sure it would have been a lot worse if it had been in this day and age. But yeah, I, I just avoided everything because I felt so bad. I, I didn't want to get wrapped up in what was being said here, there and everywhere because any, any bit of negativity would, at that point would have made me feel 10 times worse. And just and just taking me off in a different direction, worrying about something else that really didn't need to worry about. But you know, you can't control that side of of the of the media or the game or, or what goes on. It's just part and parcel of it. You've just got to try and um, take yourself away from it. Um, and when they understand it a little bit more, then potentially they will, you know, be able to go, okay, hands up. It wasn't that case. It wasn't that way. We take it all back. Tell us a bit about your work with the PCA now, and uh, and and also, I mean, there, there barely a week goes by without without somebody crediting you um, for, for for helping them either directly or, or indirectly. I mean, the most recent two I've seen are Liam Plunkett and uh, and Nick Compton. Have you had a lot of people thanking you personally? Well, I, I would say I've had quite a numerous amount of uh, behind the scenes conversations with people who. Maybe you just want to ask questions, you know, how did I, what were my symptoms? What did it feel like? Um, how did I cope with it dealing with the club? You know, what was, what was it like playing when you were feeling in that sort of fashion? Many different ways. And, you know, I've had conversations. I've had some great conversations being out there batting with certain people saying, I feel awful today. And he goes, yeah, I, I feel awful as well. But, you know, the, you know, that's the sort of... Uh, um, ironic sort of side of it you can get to after a while because you know once you've got an understanding with people that you bat with you can be open and honest and say I feel terrible I feel awful and it's nice to you know, of course it's really nice to you know to think that you made an impact and help them potentially you know with a, with a quick phone call here and there or how you doing or you know trying to get them help with with the PCA or with people and, and stuff like that really you, you do your best to try and make them happy because you appreciate how tough a place they're in um, and how they must be feeling because of you know you experiencing it yourself. Reading the book, I'm left with very, very with a very strong impression that there's nothing you could have done differently. Even even if there had been, if we'd been ten or fifteen years further down the road, I mean, if you reached that Baroda moment in your in in 2020, for example, mm. um, there. I've just left with the impression that, that you, you know, you could, it, it just, as you said, it just is what it, it is and it was what it was. And, you know, it's like being born with a, a I don't know, a blood condition or something, you know, you can't, yeah. you can't change it. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I, the only thing I would say to sort of counteract that is because of the awareness now, and you look at like we talked about already about um, administrators allowing players a bit more time off. Um, yes, I missed a series in Zimbabwe and I got injured. I broke a thumb when I missed a three games against India. I reckon I would have played a lot more potentially now in, in relation to what they do nowadays where they, they will be, they'll build in a period of time where there might be a rest period for them um, and might be a looked at. Or I may have gone to them um, and said, oh, I'm not quite operating right. And we might have been able to do something to counteract it a little bit quicker and get on top of the process quicker. But I think it was just something that was in me. It wasn't something that was brought about because of playing cricket for a long period of time. And it's not something I could have done a great deal about it being there. But we might have been able to do something to help it with the awareness and with 
understanding the illness, what we do probably more now than what we did sort of 20 years ago. Cricket is a bit of a petri dish, isn't it, for um, for, for poor mental health, given given that bowlers and batsmen as individuals are destined to fail far, far more than, than they are to succeed if we measure it in terms of reaching 50 or, or taking five wickets or scoring 100, that kind of thing. Um, also, the time away from home, the inherent unfairness of it, uh, perhaps <laughs> as well. Although golfers, uh, many golfers I know tell me that, that golf's the most inherently unfair game. But, but cricket, uh, it, it is a breeding ground, isn't it, for, for poor mental health? Potentially, and I think there's a lot of cases of it, isn't there, where we, we see it from the past of people, um, I guess, taking their own lives more, more than anything else, back, you know, going back over the years. I, I personally, I don't know whether it breeds poor mental health playing cricket. I'm, I've not seen any studies to see to say that it, it does or whatever it is. Yes, we appreciate it's very cutthroat in terms of success and failure is highlighted very easily. Where in comparison, if you're playing in a, game, in a team of 11 or 15, everybody's in it closer together. But batting and bowling is a very individual game in a team sport, which we know. So you get pinpointed as being you've had success or you've had failure a lot easier. But I think when we talk about one in three, one in four people in the general population of England and in the world will suffer with mental health problems. I can't understand why cricket would be any more of a reason than anything else. Well, time, Maybe time. just been highlighted. Just, just the time, Trez. The, the time it takes to, to play and be away from home. And... Well, yes, but, you know, but there's other... You know, there's other industries that, that, that have that sort of time. Yes, I appreciate we play five-day games or four-day games in first-class cricket. I can't see how it, it can be. I'm, I may be wrong, right? I, this is me sitting back and looking at it, and, I, and I've answered this question numerous times on, uh, on different topics. And, and I, I want somebody to go, right, here's the data, here's the information to show me cricket is more susceptible to be having poor mental health in comparison to playing football or rugby or whatever it may be. And it might be, it might well be, but I'm yet to see it. I'm just trying to think in my own mind, why would it be any different when one in three, one in four people in the general population will suffer uh, at some point? You know, what, what makes it any different? I don't know. And out of the ground comes the stumps. England have regained the ashes at the Oval. September the 12th, 2005. The match here is drawn. Let the celebrations begin. Let's have a little reminisce about the 2005 Ashes then. Um, <laughs> I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> well, a lot of people, again, tend to forget. You know, they, they, they remember, they've all got their favourite moments. But again, it comes back to our obsession with, with hundreds batsman being defined by hundreds you didn't score 100 but you scored 431 runs and you yeah. played a, a a very very significant role in in a number of those test matches but a bit of, i guess it's the team isn't it? it i mean it was just such an amazing achievement as a team yeah it was i think it was the the perfect crescendo wasn't it you had you're playing against a, an australian side who had been great for for many many careers and many many sort of series that they played in one um, in England, nearly every time they'd come over for about the last 10 times. And it just felt like it was ready. We were, as a group, as a team, 
had built for, for 18 months for that sort of series to be going out and being competing against them to be able to stand up and play their style of play. We had a batting lineup who were prepared to be confident and risky a little bit and, and score at an aggressive pace. That was what the, the captain and coach wanted us to do. Um, but we also had the bowling attack that could match it up also with, you know, two two lads who were bowling at sort of 90 plus miles an hour. One was Steve Harmison, who was world number one bowler at the time. Oh, Stephen Harmison with a slower ball. One of the great balls. Andrew Flintoff, whose bowling was, was superb, especially in that series. He put in some monumental efforts. Here's a big shout. He's gone. It's the wicket. Andrew Flintoff is turning this game around. He did it with a bat first. First up today, now with the ball. Backed up with, uh, you know, Simon Jones and Matthew Hoggard in, in that sort of aspect. So it, it was a group together that worked um, and that was making great inroads into, you know, to playing against many good sides. Do you, do you, have you, do you watch it back? Have, have you got, have you got the, 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 the box set? Do you... <laughs> <laughs> no, we did. We all got sent them afterwards. But it's very often they will put on uh, the Ashes 05 um, and reminisce and sit back and enjoy it because everybody loves to see us beating Australia. Of course they do, but it's uh, yeah, it's very often still on the TV and they have anniversaries every five minutes. About you know, it's been at least twelve weeks since we put on the Ashes 05. Let's put it on again, so you, you get to sit back and uh, and enjoy those sort of occasions quite often. What's the favourite innings you played during the 05? Yeah, I well, the the ninety I got edge Baston. That's the slider. And well driven by Trescothic. And that couple brings up a very nice half century for the Somerset man. You know, you, you, you pretty much enjoy that. There's some, you know, some shots within that. And the, the timing and the aggression of, of going into that game just seemed to work. Very disappointed, obviously, not to get 100. And it is, I don't know if you, obviously, you'll know, but quite often there's times when you're batting when the bowler rushes you a little bit. You know, and you look up and he's a little bit closer than you're expecting. Uh, and that was very much the case when uh, I got out on that ball. I probably, you know, it's one of those you probably should have just pulled away and said, sorry, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. But, uh, you know, the rest is history after that. You mentioned the aggression. I mean, it took viewers collectively, took their breath away. It was, it was staggering. It wasn't something that many English fans had become, were used to seeing from uh, an English uh, test batsman, certainly not an opener. Um, do you think, first of all, did you walk out there feeling bullishly aggressive? Uh, and do you think it took the Aussies' breath away? Well, I think we walked out there with a, obviously a slight spring in our step, knowing that Glenn McGrath wasn't going to be bowling at us, <laughs> um, having already stood on the ball and been carted off, off to hospital. But I think... We all knew at that time, we, we knew at the Ed's Baston pitch pretty well, that it was always pretty good um, and started flatter and got worse with a bit more up and down and a bit more spin as the game went upon. So it was always the best time to bat. You, you knew day one was always the, the best time to go out there and enjoy and, and hit it. And I think it just, it just made its way. It just built upon momentum, didn't it? We got off to a nice start in the first few overs, a couple of nice boundaries. There's a man back, but he can only watch one bounce four from Marcus Trescothic. And then we started building and then not losing a wicket for a good period of time. You can then be a little bit more aggressive and a bit more expansive against, you know, spinners or other seamers when they come on to, you know, come into bat. Um, and things were happening. You were hitting the ball and they were missing it. Or I think I got caught off a no ball 
um, off Kasperovich again. I, I thought another wafty drive and got caught at, at Gully uh, off a of noble. And it was just, everything was falling into place to just go in and carry on. And, and momentum's an amazing thing, isn't it? Once it, once it builds in your favour, it's a very enjoyable time to be playing the game because everything seems to go the way you want it to go. What do you say to those lovers of statistics, and there are many, many of them in cricket, who say that uh, that if you played the, a full, the full England career and it had come to a, a, an organic end, that you would have com comfortably passed Graham Gooch's uh, test record and that uh, Alistair Cook, now Sir Alistair Cook, would have been chasing your record? Uh, it's always nice to sit back and potentially that might have happened. You know, for me growing up, obviously watching Graham Gooch, Gower, these type of people batting was was obviously pretty special. Then Mike Atherton and Alex Stewart and these sort of people. But Gooch obviously had set the, the benchmark for everyone here. So that would have been a nice feeling to be able to try and chase him down, of course. But um, I don't look back upon it um, with regret to think that I never had that option or never never got to that point. Well, I had great time and I had six years of brilliant time playing international cricket and loved you know a lot of those times um i don't have a great deal of regrets about it and thinking right i would have loved to have played of course i would have loved to have played for 10 years or you know 12 years or whatever it would have been but it was what it was you know there was too there was too big a price for me to not walk away but it it was you know that, that's it I'm, I'm comfortable with the fact that i never had that opportunity to you know to go on and do bigger things of course it was but you know, it doesn't. I don't sit on it now and think, "Oh, yeah, really would have offered the opportunity to come around and and to play it." It was just that's just part of the professional career that you have nowadays. Make that a hundred. Great way to bring up the hundred. So I mentioned in the introduction that you scored a hundred and twenty-two hundreds. Again, that makes my eyes water. But you missed out on the double of a hundred hundreds and a hundred wickets. Because you, 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 you only finished with, with 98 wickets, if my research is correct. So let's talk about you. If you, you had sent me this information a long time ago, when I was captain, I would have definitely bowled myself more to get out those extra couple of wickets. <laughs> uh, I could probably think about it. There's a couple. I know I had Graham Hit dropped at slip once with an absolute dolly. And I was like, how have you not caught that? But I should have got more wickets. And I definitely, definitely, definitely should have got more hundreds. Hun scoring hundreds was never... A massive part of my, a massive strength of mine, I would definitely not say. You know, with someone, you see other people that you just know when they're going to get, like Alistair Cook, right? Sir Alistair Cook just seems to churn out hundreds left, right, and centre. What a way to bring up three figures. Alistair Cook has done it. A century in his first ever test match, and now a century in his last. Mark Rampakash, Graham Hick, they just churn out hundred after hundred after hundred. That was never my strength, I don't say. I learned how to get better and kind of do it okay. But if you think, uh, if I was one part that I would have said, I should have scored another 3,500s, I reckon, on that top, on top of that. In you 27 years. You scored 122 of them. Yeah, but that's across t two or three formats, isn't it? You know, yeah. 6,600s in first-class cricket, I should have got more. You know, I, I've, there was periods when I struggled with with nervous 90s and stuff like that, and I had to work at that in my the mental sort of process of doing it. Um, I think because there was so much put on it, you know, the kudos of you getting 100, it was like the be all and end all, wasn't it? That's what you go out to do every time. I go out every game to get 100. Well, we know that's not possible, and you know, it's getting 50 is as good as 100 sometimes, but 
Um, I would have loved to have been better at it. I'd like to have been more ruthless at doing that, as good as some people were. Hey, I was talking about your bowling. 36 first-class <laughs> wickets, 57 list A wickets, four in one-day in, in one internationals, and one test wicket. Who was it? Do you yeah. remember? Yeah, I do. Of course I do. Well, that is a soft dismissal. As I say that Marcus just got yeah. it, the experiment has come to an end. Well, I'm not sure that will be greeted with too much enthusiasm in the Pakistani dressing room. It was in um, Karachi. Obviously, we haven't played there for a long period of time. Um, it was in a famous test match that ended up almost in the dark. And uh, in the first innings of the first day, I bowled first change in a test match. What? And I got, yeah. So Gar Darren Goff and Andy Caddy opened the bowl in and I bowled first change. How, how NASA Hussain managed to get that, made to do that, I do not know. Um, but I had uh, Imran Nazir, caught at extra cover. All part of the plan? Absolutely, yeah. Was, I just took a slight bit of pace off it so that he was through his shot and just lifted it straight to uh, Ashley Giles at extra cover. You always had a massive smile on your face that I remember when, when the captain did throw the ball to you. Did you, did you love the bowling? Well, yeah, to a certain extent. I thought it was always great fun being involved in the game, wasn't it? I think if you, if you would have been just a bowler who's had to do all the donkey work and then not enjoy the batting or, you know, if you, didn't, if you did nothing else but, but just bat, you know, I think, you know, it can get quite uh, boring at times. I think you want to be involved in it. Like standing at slip, you're involved in the game all the time. If I'd have been down at fine leg, I reckon I would have drifted off quite easily and been away, um, not, at, not in the action. So getting the ball and, you know, turning your arm over or keeping wicket, standing at slip, all these little things that you could do to be involved in the game. That was all, you know, exciting to me. Yeah, keeping. Let's go yeah. there. Yeah, well, I, I really enjoyed that. Really enjoyed that. It was, I kept wicket from a young age in the junior stuff that I did. And I just, you know, it was great fun. I was never particularly the most mobile keeper. I was very much about just trying to catch the ball. I didn't really worry about how it looked. Um, and I did, what, four or five games, I think, keeping wicket, one in India, and I think three or four in New Zealand. Um, great fun. Loved, loved keeping wicket. And even today, I've been coaching at, uh, at Somerset. And obviously, we're in strange lock time, you know, these strange times with lockdown and stuff. But I've now got my gloves there that I can now catch the ball um, off the spinners and stuff and throw them back. So today, I was just catching a few and just sort of reminiscing and enjoying those moments when you, when you had that chance. Uh, is coaching something that you were always heading towards um and and is it uh, are you hoping that it will be long term uh very much so you know uh, i guess um in the last sort of five years i sort of branched out during my sort of lack of playing white ball cricket having stopped that sort of three four years ago um during that time i was allowed to then go off and do quite a bit of media work with um with sky and, and sort of commentary and, and various bits and pieces. And, that, and that's brilliant fun. And I still really enjoy that. But I, I see the, the direction finally when it, you know, obviously when it comes and, and sort of makes that choice that, you know, I want to be coaching and be, become a head coach. That's what I want to do. I'm lucky a bit at the moment. I can still sort of dip in and out of it because we get winter times off where we're, you can have a bit of period of time and, and sort of still do a bit of punditry and stuff. But coaching, you know, that the buzz of helping the you know, the next generation or somebody improve on their game, get them back on track or just sort of guide them in the right direction um, to be onto international cricket, with, which is great. Uh, and that, that gives you a lot of pleasure because A, you're still involved in around the sort of uh, the atmosphere of the team and, and what goes on. 
so you, you, it's a continuation of what you've always enjoyed doing and, and being involved with. Time's up, Marcus Triscothic. I can only thank you once again for uh, for your career, actually, for all the entertainment that you've provided, um, and uh, and for the for the courage and leadership that you've shown through the second half of your career. Thank you. Thanks, Neil. You're listening to the following on podcast. A big thanks to both Marcus Triscothic and, of course, Neil Manthorpe. Remember, you can always download the following on podcast from Apple Podcasts, Acast, Spotify, and now the free TalkSport app. Thanks for listening. The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. And this is your gentle reminder that Barbados is the best place to be a cricket fan. With eight matches from the ICC Men's T20 Cricket World Cup Series taking place in Barbados this summer, including the final, you can experience the summer of a lifetime by booking today. Aside from immersing in world-class cricket in the sunshine, Barbados is the dream destination for all travel enthusiasts. It is where adventure meets paradise, the culinary capital of the Caribbean, and better still, the birthplace of rum. If you're keen to unite with cricket fans across the globe for what is set to be an unforgettable summer, then head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.